Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. This episode was sponsored by ArchiPro. ArchiPro showcases the best and latest in the architecture and building industry and helps to connect homeowners with trusted trade professionals and products that will suit their needs. For architects and designers, ArchiPro helps you to create a profile for your practice in a way that best expresses your brand and your work, and then it directly connects you with a niche audience of people on their architectural build or renovation journey. Many architects rely on word-of-mouth referrals or search engine traffic to find new clients, but it can be difficult to attract the people you really want to design for and work with. That's why ArchiPro helps clients to match their specific architectural taste and budget with the right architect or designer for their project. You can also use the platform throughout the design and build journey with your clients by directly sharing inspiration and sourcing products for your projects as well. So if you'd like to find out more about ArchiPro, visit www.archipro.com.au. Joining me on the show today is Lachlan Nielsen and Morgan Jenkins from Nielsen Jenkins, a multi-award winning architecture practice based in Brisbane, Australia. In this episode, Lachlan, Morgan and I discussed how the two directors have combined their backgrounds in architecture and construction to create a practice with an emphasis on buildability, assembly and doing things efficiently. We looked at how the studio has developed a broad range of interdisciplinary service offerings that help their clients to achieve more within the constraints of their budget. We discussed what the studio focuses on when developing a creative brief for their project photography, from capturing an honest and realistic view of the site to tailoring their photography style to complement the local climate and stripping the images back to accentuate the big ideas behind each project. We looked at how they structure their fees, project team and staff resources to be able to do award-winning work on small budget projects while still having the capacity to take on larger budget projects at the same time. And finally, we looked at why the studio has developed a range of innovative first steps for new clients, such as a fixed fee concept package, a new client welcome pack, a waitlist and deposit system, and how these systems have helped them to see more projects through to the end and filter for better quality clients at the same time. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lachlan and Morgan from Nielsen Jenkins. Lachlan and Morgan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Nice to see you, mate. We always start off with a little bit of a background on the studio. We probably should have planned out who was going to do this beforehand, but let's just let's just go for it. Who's going to give the best sort of, here's where we came from and our, our sort of story as a practice? We had a long sort of courtship, actually. I sort of danced around commitment for a while. No, but it was quite interesting, actually, because when I met Locke, he was working for Kevin O'Brien Architects, and I was working for Form Architecture, Paul Hudson, in adjacent offices, and I knew that Locke was pretty handy with furniture and stuff and so I, I had actually um designed a really wacky table for a um for a friend of mine's apartment fit out and started talking to Locke about it and then for some advice and he ended up building it sort of being commissioned to build it for that project and so from that we just became mates and then traveled for a little while and then came back and I had some projects that I ran under Locke's license and I paid him to help on those projects with me and he had some projects that I contracted him on and they were both architecture projects and building projects at that point in time and furniture projects and cabinetry projects so we sort of did a bunch of those um, things together and then I got a small project that ended up being the Turinga Pavilion and we did that together and then we put it out to tender and we ended up putting in a tender because we sort sort of saw it as an opportunity to it was a really sort of undiluted project that we really liked and we saw it as an opportunity, a tiny budget. So we had, had an opportunity to stay with the project for longer and get the sort of detail and thought into the project that we thought it deserved. And that ended up being a pretty good call because it was a really tough process being the builder as well as the architect, but a really excellent process because Locke has a, sorry, Locke has a building license. He retrospectively got it from um, building projects with Jamie Russell, James Russell, in Brisbane, but then he also took a year off to design and build his parents' house after uni. So I, I think that was a pretty huge learning curve and a pretty huge sort of jump into trust 
together. Like our agreement at the start was basically he had a much higher hourly rate than I did because he had all the tools and he knew what he was doing. I was basically the labourer. But we sort of agreed to split profit or split pain as well. And I think that's sort of that's where we sort of established all the trust. And I think from there it's for the next few years we sort of did a bunch of projects and we were sort of all over the place. We were sort of designing, we were building. Um, some of them we designed and then we got contracted back to the builder just to do the cabinetry. Yeah, quite quite an interesting sort of role in. And during that process, I think we started getting busy from a design point of view as well. And so that started becoming a bit untenable, working physically like that and then also drawing all night. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the architecture became more and more and less in building. And, and Lachlan, from your perspective, you know, um, being kind of in both worlds, the architecture world and the building world, like what was your sort of, I guess, point of view starting this new practice or or kind of beginning to work on these projects together in terms of how you were going to, you know, like which kind of camp you sort of see, saw yourself in or was it just like this idea of being kind of continuing to do the building stuff and the architecture stuff going forward into the future? I think that's changed over the years. I, I, I just love sort of making stuff and and it just stemmed from an interest while working for Jamie Russell and Kev O'Brien actually and and I was really intrigued by the process of design and then making and then how making affected the design, you know, in retrospect and, and this sort of continuous sort of cyclical process where you sort of learn from one project and then not do it again and then detail it a different way. So I was always interested in that. I still still very much am. I would love the idea that we could build more but it just it just became one of the things we did realise through that process was, you know, we'd be on site and then mums would have a client meeting and I'd have a client meeting with literally washing or having a shower under a hose on site, getting changed into sort of architecture gear and then going off to meetings and then coming back and we were just like, this is, this is sort of not, not ideal. And then as we got more and more projects, it sort of just became quite hard. But we're still, we're still very much, I think today we're very much influenced by how buildings are assembled and and we love the conversation with builders about economies and, and how we can do things smarter and, and easier and still achieve really good results design-wise but also to not kill builders and, and make things that aren't sort of buildable. So I, I do feel like we try to foster a culture in the office where everyone has a understanding of assembly to a degree. So I don't, I don't know if we're, we're going to build any more projects. Maybe we will for the office or something like that, but I don't think it's it's something that we're actively pursuing as a sort of joint thing anymore. Mm. But maybe, it must still have maybe. some, you know, some effects that kind of carry over over long-term into your process and stuff. You've got this like mindset of building things and this sort of interest and knowledge about that. But I think there must be also other ways that it makes the practice stronger, right? I mean, you talking to you guys the other day, you were telling me about how you still you still do get pretty hands-on in different aspects of the project, whether that's like landscape or furniture or whatever. So you're still out there getting out of your architecture gear and putting on the builder gear every now and then, right? I know, definitely. I, I think I think we'll continue to do small pieces. It's just what we can, uh, the ability we can do. We have this funny thing in the office of somehow doing landscape projects in the middle of summer and we every time we do a landscape project, we say, well, why, why do we do it in the middle of summer? Like instead of in the cool the cooler months of June July but um well I think I think now it's it's just we take on that work in a more manageable way I think the thing that made us stop doing it is that you it's it's really a full-time job to be you know in charge of a building site like you can't sort of just tap in and out of it so the things that we do now are more you know if we see an opportunity to do something in a project that means that it's financially doable for a client we would much prefer to make you know an example being a furniture piece we're about to shoot a project next week with tom where Locke built the you know we can deliver it because we just charge hourly rates and the client buys all the materials directly and we're just doing it as a one-off it's not our business model we can deliver it for a way cheaper price and for us it's it's if it's a critical piece in the arrangement of a plan or arrangement of a project then we'd much rather see it happen and get paid something for it. Sure, we're not going to shoot the lights out with what we make on it, but it's 
the project gets realized in the way that we imagine it. And that's where we sort of find a lot of value these days. Like maybe it's a key dining table or a built-in seat or a couch. Locke's got really good at doing couches. So he can sort of do a couch for, you know, a fraction of the cost that you do in a, to, to buy one. Um, and it's sort of specific to that project and that those people. And it's a really great thing to be able to do. And I think, I think that sort of to tie into the landscape conversation is, I know this is a bizarre reference, but on the Dulux trip, we went to Norman Foster's campus there in London. But one of the things that I was really struck with was how they had internalised engineers, sound people, videographers, illustrators, animators, you know, in, under their own banner. And, yeah, it's, it's a money-making machine, but I, I imagine that that's actually like the other side of it, if you look at it positively, is that they get control over all these parts, you know, like, and so they get they get the best engineers who give. They don't have. They're not butting heads with the engineers because they're the engineers are working with the same exact same goal as they're. They are the engineers, yeah, exactly. You know, and so what we did with the landscape was that we were really frustrated early on with getting to the end of a project and the clients paying five hundred bucks for a land for a lawn or something and not doing it. And we'd imagine this really landscape oriented scheme was around a courtyard or something. And so what we did there is that we just we brought on. At that point, John Kopinski, who ducked my year of architecture and had gone back to do landscape, just as a casual person, we took all the risk out of it for him. And then clients would just pay him an hourly rate that we just literally passed on to him, not making any margin on. And and he would just do it in whatever time it took. But And then he would source all the plants. We would have a commercial account with a um, nursery and then clients would just buy that themselves. And instead of us making 30% on the plants, the clients just get it directly and we get 30% more plants. Like we were, we were stoked with that as, as an outcome. We got paid an hourly rate, <laughs> but it's, but it's, but it's, it's yeah. and then, and then our projects ended up looking like the way we wanted them to, you know, and, and, and in, in fact, like looking way better, better yeah. because, because we, yeah, we had this extra whole layer of design that we were participating in and we love and we learn from all the time. And it's one of our favorite parts. And so then, you know, now there's a huge part of that design that happens on site. So we just, you know, we charge the client for it as a separate fee to the architecture, but it's like tiny hourly rates. But at least it sort of covers us to be there for that design part. And, you know, call call it an advertising expense, call it whatever you want, but it's it's actually like we we end up with a project that we feel you know, it, it, it realizes the sort of vision of the whole thing in a way that is really really rewarding. I think. Yeah, it's like win win, right? It's like good for the client mm. and for you guys from from a marketing standpoint. Sounds like that helps you to get a really high kind of rate of projects that actually get built the way you want them to be, right? Like I think a lot of practices in the early days really, really struggle to see the work kind of realized properly because of those budgetary kind of constraints where we're not going to, you know, we'll, we'll come back to the landscape in five years or whatever, like these elements that you end up just not doing and then the project just doesn't come together in this like really beautiful way. Mm-hmm. But, you yeah, know, that makes that that totally makes sense. If you can make it more achievable for the client to do it, then you guys will end up getting a high percentage of your projects to that point, right? What we did as well from a design point of view was was put the landscape into the concept designs as, a, as an integral part of the scheme. And, 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 we, and we weren't saying that the building was was it or but it, the whole idea was about the building and the landscape together and so the the concept of like from literally the first meeting we were discussing what type of landscapes would be where on the site and what edges were and what sort of you know planting we imagined tall low you know we didn't get into exactly the plant types but we we'd always imagined where rocks were or where so the the clients sort of got quite invested into the landscape from the very early days so it was very hard for them to then pull out of the landscape because it was almost part yeah. of the plan or part of the building as a as a component of the design and, and then we were constantly talking about that landscape and, and so we didn't get left at the end where it was like okay we'll just turf everything you know even if we'd run out of money we still had some money in there to put into something but also it's, it's prioritizing what we see as the most important thing it's that sort of building its relationship to the side and to the external stuff particularly in Queensland you know we're sort of so lucky up here but for us we'd much rather save money on the tiles or the taps or the light fittings than save money on this other thing which is what the building is all about you know if someone comes into a project and 
the first thing they notice is the tap, then we've made a pretty ordinary building, you know? That's, that's our mm. that's our uh, thing. Of of course, that stuff is important and, of course, it, it brings value and, of course, if it's wrong, it's, it's wrong. But we'd much rather be smart about that stuff and have it and have the landscape as a sort of integral part of the scheme. And that's often really difficult with residential projects because that's the stuff that they can see in a shop. That's the stuff they can touch and feel. That's the stuff that they've seen at their mates' places, all of that stuff. And so I think it's a lot in the language that we use to communicate the scheme as Locke said early on. And I think it's a lot in, you know, how we display the schemes in the models and everything during the whole course of the project you know, or the design process. Yeah, interesting. Oftentimes I'll have architects on that, have this like extra capability in interior design and it's really integrated into the studio where, you know, they're not just sort of doing the architecture stuff, but they're also going down to the level of like selecting furniture, artwork, kitchen utensils, like down to every little level of detail for the client. And then when you see like the end, the end result with the project, or in my case, I'm looking at the photography and it's just so well integrated and everything's just so carefully considered and everything. I always love hearing that because it's such a value add, I guess, on the, on the typical business to do that extra level or that, or that more holistic sort of process. But I hear that a lot with design, but I think you guys are the first to come on the show and talk about like landscape being that thing for you, where it's not just kind of selecting furniture objects and things and artwork, but it's, it's going outside the building or, or, or whatever, looking at landscape. And it's, it's interesting how unique that is given that landscape is such an important theme that architects in Australia talk about. But I actually see how it's become part of your business model where it's been like baked into the cake in this kind of quite unique way that I don't hear a lot of other architects like talking about. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's just kind of who we are too. At the moment, everyone's sort of really engaging with the ph- photography of architecture and, and, and a lot of that I think is driven the way that architecture is, is shot is a lot of it is driven by I don't know who's advertising in the magazines or, or on the blogs or, or whatever because those and then usually yeah. they're the people who are, I don't know, taps and lights and um, tiles and Interesting stuff, which push, theory. Push, push, pushing products. But you, you, start, you start looking at like old architects. I can't really think of there's one Merkit kitchen that I know what it looks like. There's all, you know, like Caesar, Caesar <laughs> yeah, right. projects. Like they're not photographing the kitchen. You know, they're photographing yeah. the openings and the light and the volumes and all those sort of things. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating because they only had the sort of, you know. I hadn't really shame. thought about that. That's interesting to think that maybe there's a little bit of like influencer marketing going on probably, you know, there's more maybe going on behind the scenes that influence that like the product suppliers and designers maybe have on the market than it I'm not, I'm not saying it in a, in a critical way because you know like that it's the only way for those things to survive is to have a dual business model but it's I don't know that that stuff just isn't as high on our radars like we don't we don't live in monastic mm. houses we live in noisy um, messy yeah low-key houses and it's, it's always so funny to me when you go around to a client's house and they say, oh, I'm so sorry about all the mess. And it's just like, what do you, what do you think happens <laughs> in our houses? It's like the ph- ph- photography yeah. of architecture is, is very different to how, it, um, how it's lived. And it's really important to us that our houses feel comfortable to live in. They don't feel sort of uptight or opulent. When you're thinking about photography, is there anything like intentional going on there where you're thinking about, oh, we want to sort of depict the project in a particular way to kind of like communicate maybe that idea of it isn't, you know, this monastic kind of crazy existence, like it's a real house, these are real people, this sort of stuff. Is there anything that you guys kind of have thought about, maybe not maybe not consciously, but maybe subconsciously that influences your decisions, like getting Tom Ross to shoot your stuff you know he's from he's a melbourne based photographer typically right so it's kind of like a it's an interesting choice to sort of branch out get tom to shoot your stuff i'm sure there's a story there but i'm just interested in your sort of philosophy around photography and the kind of style that you guys have gone for for your project because it suits them so well just kind of curious about your sort of decision making process maybe personally for me we when we talk to people like Tom Ross or Shantanu or Alicia Taylor, any of those guys. We're really interested in 
in those key ideas that we started out with and so they have to be captured. I often feel like we'd like to not edit the context of how the buildings sit in that. Like we, we really like to try and make sure that, I don't know, I do remember years ago going to a couple of projects, I can't even remember what they were, but they were photographed so sort of tight that when I was there the experience was completely different to what I imagined the photographs to be like and so I always thought that I was try to not do that. I'd try to capture our projects so that if people went there, they weren't going to sort of think, oh, wow, they really cut that block of apartments out or they cut that busy road out or the street signs or the solar panels of next door. Like, you know, every architect, of course, moderates the vision or the sort of exposure of a project. But at the same time, I don't think you want to sort of mislead people or anyone into believing what it is. And then and then when you go there, you're like, this is completely not what we have sold in a way in photography. And it was always, it was always just interesting sometimes when you, when you go to projects and they're not what the magazines have shown. Yeah. I think it was also for, for us, it's that sort of honesty in the photography. Um, but also I think that we do strip the projects quite a lot in, in the actual photographing of them just so then to try and bring the ideas to the forefront. So it's not a lifestyle shoot. Like there was a couple of times with different people, not people that we sort of usually use, where it was just heading towards a lifestyle shoot and it was just feeling really wrong and it was not, you know, like you can you can imply um, occupation without necessarily putting someone in a white flowy linen shirt or something in every photo. And I think it's, it's, it's that thing. Like I think Tom did a great job with Mount Kutha, for instance, where you can see how it, you can imagine how it's occupied, but it's the emphasis is on the openings and the connection to the landscape and those sort of things. We, we sort of made a bit of a call on that to not put people in it much at all. And I think it was really effective. And, and I think that's, that's kind of where we're at is, is we will strip it a lot to try and foreground the ideas, I think, rather than making it sort of too lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and I think that's good because it's it, yeah it, it sort of brings a clarity to the images because it's you know ninety nine percent of people will only engage with the project through eight images or ten images and it's so you've got to be really those are so critical and it's the last stage of documentation we sort of see it as and so Chance Mustarek used to take our photos as well and he lives in Ireland now and so that was a real problem during COVID and then Tom had been shooting. Claire Scorpo stuff and Public Realm Lab stuff, who they're both mates of mine and we really liked particularly his um, photos of Paul Kucha's stuff because he wasn't sort of shying away from darkness, you know, like the, so, so often people are overcooking, yes. overcooking it and making it too Spot light. Yep. And for us and, and also, you know, it I shows. think in Melbourne all the, all the, all the photos in Melbourne are, are sort of going sort of more and more desaturated, which is, it, they're the most magnificent photographs, but in, in Melbourne you sort of can do that, I think, because it's the predominant light condition is sort of this, you know, and a, a more overcast thing. But in Queensland we want to show that the building works in the daytime. You know, we have like really heavy contrast. We want to show that. We want to show that depth in our projects. And Shade I think, and darkness. and Yeah, and that's and that's what we loved about his photos of Paul Kutcher's stuff was, you know, in, in particularly in a leafy context. We really loved that he was getting the contrast really nicely. I think like darker, moodier images is like I think I've probably probably had this thought a few times on the podcast recently, but I think that's kind of the way it's heading uh, is towards like more of that darker, moodier, more more kind of emotion, more feeling sort of imagery, and a little bit less super oversaturated, um, flat, kind of very super minimal, overcast. Or as some architects have said, sort of almost like bushfire smoke kind of look to everything where it's very just sort of smoky and undefined. And yeah, I don't know, maybe things are heading in that way. And I think people are kind of getting into that. But I think that totally relates to your work because I think like, you know, I'm in Perth, you guys are in Queensland, there is a sort of harsh, maybe a bit of a harshness to the environment. And maybe the home, you know, has more of this kind of feeling of like shelter and retreat and you kind of want to get out of the sun and, you know, Mm. it's kind of nice to have this sort of feeling of like, okay, it's like a kind of darker, cooler, kind of calmer place. And I think Mm. like photography that aligns with that 
feeling that you're trying to create and even just that difference between Melbourne and, and Queensland, I think is just absolutely spot on. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I think like as a brand, right, because I could imagine that you guys would be in this, this will be a tough question, but a, strat- a problem that comes up, a strategy sort of decision that you have to make quite often, I think is a residential practice is do we see ourselves as kind of the studio for the everyday person where we're thinking about sort of affordability and, you know, that normal people should be engaging with architects and all that sort of stuff. And and maybe seeing the other side as being this kind of like elite kind of out of touch architect, right? Who's kind of, you know, never showing people in photos and it's about magazines and awards and stuff. And there's this sort of these two sides, I think, that sometimes tend to establish or these two sort of sets of values. And, you know, speaking to you guys, I kind of get the sense that you may be on the middle of those two where it's like we do get the photos without the people because it brings out the ideas and it's a more kind of intellectual in that way. Whereas at the same time, we're thinking about affordability, trying to like get get more going in these projects, trying to really like roll up our sleeves to try and make more happen. That sort of economy theme, you know, goes on. So that's just me listening to it as the marketing guy. But am I getting warmer there that maybe there's this idea of like, where do we sort of sit as a studio? from a brand standpoint? I have an upbringing from a rural sort of background and farm buildings and Morgan has a, a family property on an island, like a, a tin shed sort of very remote building. It's, it's in southeast Queensland. But we both are attracted to, you know, almost like a, a modernist or a brutalism or, you know, the, the, the sort of honesty of buildings and, and how they sit and, and we were always intrigued and we still are intrigued by that. And I think it's ingrained in us that, that, that everything has to be there for a reason. Everything has to have a purpose. Everything has to have, you know, there has to be a value to what we're adding in terms of not just the design, but, you know, if it's important that that opening is 10 metres or 20 metres and that set of doors is costing $60,000, there has to be something that the building or the design or the landscape gets from that and the, and the clients get from that from that key idea so I think we as a practice like putting value on elements of the building but we, we're now starting to get into through COVID and labour and, and builder shortages and trades going up and materials going up but you know it's actually for us quite interesting in that we were sort of doing a lot of that stuff before this happened or it was something that we were interested in and, and so now it's actually giving us more of an opportunity to express materials and express um, how things are put together but also to we, we have a really um, great relationship with a couple of builders that we use repeatedly and we and we like that relationship and, and the buildings are better, the, the trust is better, the designs are sort of realised by we're not fighting with the builders either and so it sort of delivers this very calm building approach when we're on site with clients as well That and maybe this is a bit sidetracked but, but mm. that together sort of allows us to put the buildings together I think in, in that sort of I wouldn't say it's an economical way. Like I think economic probably not the right well, term for. But I think we've always been interested in the economics. There's of components how it goes of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and but for us, we always loved the cost cutting phase. I mean, I know architects always whinge about the cost cutting phase, but for us, it it was this time where we took out all the nonsense and the decoration, and it gave us an excuse to do it, which we sort of wanted to do from the start. But you know, so we take things back and. Things were analysed sort of a, from a bang from a buck point of view and if they weren't essential to the conceptual sort of logic of the project, then we'd strip them and the projects get better for it every single time. They get better for that for that process and so what I think COVID has done is actually brought that process forward more and we sort of bring the builders into that process earlier and trusted builders and really great builders um, and they're real, really a part of the team and working that design up you know, and it's, it's, it's always analysed for the bang for the buck stuff. I think as an answer to your question, though, before, I think you're right. We, res- we wrestle with that a little bit. We want to be an affordable service and, and an affordable firm and we, we love working on small budget projects. And, in fact, we are working really hard to try and work out a way to do it that's viable for the business. And at the moment that's just doing hourly rates and we then 
and, and so the client has to have this big amount of, of trust in us to actually just draw what we think we need yeah. to get a good building to happen. And we were really stoked last year to get a comment commendation at National Awards for that little Kurumban Waters project because that was a 360 grand project contract, I think, and our fee was less than 36 grand for the whole project and that was for a family friend of ours but she had this huge trust in us and we were able to just cull all the drawings that we didn't think were absolutely critical for the idea and then we spent a lot, we got a good builder and we spent a lot of time on site and so that's what we're doing. We're doing another one for a similar project, and they're fat, and and it's for Andrew Leach, who's a professor at, at um, University of Sydney. But it's it's they're really great projects and really essential, and really like it's all about the idea and the strength of the idea, and the idea has to be stronger than the tap or the grout line in those projects, you know. So it's it's a that for us is like really liberating. I don't know we, we mm. and I, I think sometimes they're they're more transformative than you know the multi million dollar projects, and of course we, we're doing big projects as well yeah. and we love doing them but we always want to be working on both and we've got to find a way to do it that is sustainable you know for the practice but i think then in the way that you portray the architecture to your question it's about it's about the ideas it's not dummy it down for the every person like even if they've got a small budget you want to attract the people with a small budget but are keen on the ideas because then you can have a then it can be yeah. profitable and it, you can get a good project I think that's that's the key thing that we're finding. No, I think that makes sense. There's um, I mean, there's just so many studios that have you know maybe we'll be looking at five hundred thousand dollar projects or budgets coming in the door or whatever, and they and they will be talking to you know marketing people like me and saying I really want to be doing kind of one point five million dollar projects because then I can really do kind of like award winning quality work because there'll be money for this and this and the other thing, and it's you know really interesting to see when studios that can do those really big, you know, multi-million dollar projects, but then they can also go and smash it at a $350,000 project. And it's like, you know, there's no excuses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you, yeah, you have to be clever with the project team as well. Like, you know, the, the builders definitely, you know, has to have buy-in at the very early stage. But, you know, asking the builder as well, what drawings do you need? What ones don't you need? Where can we put our value and where, where do you not need it? We're still very much learning how to how to do all of this. Like it's not. I don't think we've solved any problems in the last ten years or whatever. Like I, I don't. I don't think we're any closer to solving what we are or where we're at anyway. And, and I really like the notion of that as well moving forward. We feel really proud about the fact that that project in particular was awarded. Like that's our first national recognition in 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 the Institute Awards. But it's like most practices have this trajectory where the work just keeps getting more expensive and more complex. Yes. And people associate that with making more money. And sure, like a a bigger project, usually you do make more money. But if that client's wrong as well, or or if that client's not interested in the ideas, then you spend all your time trying to bang your head against the brick wall, trying to get a great project to happen. And and, And it doesn't turn out to be a profitable project anyway you know if we if we charge proper hourly rates and we, and we do it for we just charge them what it takes us then we can we can we can do it and usually you know if we're if we're mm. you know honest and self-critical about what we're drawing you had that you had a really i really enjoyed the chat that you had with chris gilbert about that you know like that you can just move into the next market the next sort of bracket of client and have an enormous impact and expose yourself to an enormous market of potential clients and have, yeah, I don't know, it's something really liberating and fun about that too. Like you're engaging with these buildings that are really basic and the ideas have to have to be strong and fast and robust. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a really nice thing to pair well, with. So the, the bracket approaches. you're talking about is the, bra- is the bracket down. You're talking about the bracket down in budget is the one where it opens up a whole new world of possibilities. I think, I think so, yeah. Not up. But it's nice to be playing. It's nice. I, I, I mean, we're in a very privileged position where we are doing expensive projects as well. So that probably finances a bit of, a bit of the other, but it's, they're still really important projects to us. Mm, that's interesting. Maybe it is a bit of a mix of the two, right? Like you, you kind of have the biggest stuff, and then the small stuff can be. 
I want to say like a loss leader <laughs> because I don't mm. think it would be, but it's like you have to be a bit more careful with it, right? It's probably not going to be as profitable as, of a project, but you know, there's other benefits to it. There's other reasons that you want to be working on it. But I, I kind of get, I get what you're saying. Mm. Do you do hourly rates for all of your stuff or is it just, um, is it just those projects where you think, okay, the budget, we're going to have to be really careful with this and then that's the way you'll structure your fees or, or how do you kind of go about Usually, it? Usually, I, th- I think at the moment we're doing it sort of up to 500 grand. We, we would do hourly rates for probably. We sort of just say that we're going to do it based on the complexity. But like Archie, actually, we do a set concept fee that's the same for any scale of project. So it's, we do it as three grand measure drawings, three grand briefing and diagramming, and then 10 grand concept design. And that's, that's not sketch design, that's concept design. So that's literally our first time of putting it together as a, as a package and it usually has a model and usually we spend way too long on it. But we don't, but what it means is we have like this concrete thing that we can either choose to document parts of, stage it, stage it. that's sort of the master plan stage. And I think it's a really similar setup to what they said from, from memory, mm. but it gives us a chance to test the working relationship, gives them a chance, a chance to do that. And then from there, we sort of work out the best way of delivering the project, you know, and that, and that fee sort of thing from there changes mm. often depending on the complexity of it. You know, sometimes it's an interior project and we just sort of work out a fee to do that or commercial or whatever, but it's, it gives us enough fee that we can spend enough time on it to know what it involves and we know that the budget, you know, we can have ideas about the budget and keep all that stuff in line as well. Wow. So you start off a new project because, yeah, the episode you're referring to is with um, Chris from Archer, if anyone wants to go listen to that, but um, we're talking about this idea of doing like a fixed fee sort of initial stage of stuff and then you kind of go on from there so in this case you do like two sort of three grand things and then a 10 grand thing and then you develop a fee proposal or you put together a fee from that point so as a client they they know what our indicative percentages would be from there from the start right okay so they would have a rough idea of what maybe that overall kind of fee is going to look look like based on their budget and but this would be that first element where and then after that, it would be more precise. You would give them a more exact kind of fee proposal from that point. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. That's great. And does the does the sort of the structure of those initial blocks and the cost for those does that change or adjust at all based on sort of budget or project type or size, or is that just kind of this is a structured sort of fixed price thing that we do with every new project? You know, take it or leave it. That's how we sort of structure things. Yeah, it is. It's and it doesn't change. Yeah. Unless you know for sure that it's going to be hourly rates from the start, then, and then we would do hourly rates. Because usually that yeah, first okay. stage, yeah. we wouldn't make much money on, if anything, because we tend to spend too long on it. Mm. But you know that by the end of that stage that it works. We sort of realised too that we like doing the projects the whole way through. So we, we often, if it gets to that point and, and clients can't afford the fees or it's sort of, it is where it is and, and they sort of just want to do one stage or not and take it from there and that like we we try to shy away from that a little bit because we inevitably end up doing a stage and then you get phone calls for the next six months when the builders and or the engineer or someone's you know you sort of then become this point of call when things don't go right on site so we've tried to not do that either and and we I think like 95% of the project I, I don't know if we have a project that we don't do the full scope, including contract administration and site management. Like it, 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 in the small ones, the small ones are probably more so we need to do more of that and less drawing, so to speak, so that those things can be delivered with the builder and the conversations are there with people we trust on site. And, and, and I, I think too, the other thing I'd like to add is that the small projects are great, don't get me wrong, but we can't do five of them together. Like we just don't have the capacity to do it's, it's almost like the, the projects have to fit into the office in terms of where we're at and where we're, you know, COVID was a very hard time for a lot of people, but it also became really hard to staff at certain stages as well and trying to get momentum. And so we couldn't control the momentum of some of these projects and some of them were six to eight months over contract, et cetera, et cetera. And so then to add three or four little ones in there as well doesn't help the situation. So we, we do like to select the mix of projects within the office so that we can service them properly and do, you know, give people the face time they need with, with, with Morgs and I, you know, not just take everything that walks in the door. We, we've made a conscious decision about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. 
When you're talking to a new client about that first stage, that fixed fee stage, you know, you're getting this opportunity to kind of work with them and test drive them as a client. Do you sort of look at it that way? Like we can be a little bit loose in terms of putting this forward as an option to people because, you know, if we get through this first stage and we're not locked in, if it turns out that they're a pain in the butt, we can just go, "Mm, okay, you know, we're not going to go forward with your project. Or do you still sort of see that initial fix thing as kind of almost making a commitment to that client? And it's like, we still need to be pretty careful about who we even do that with, because ultimately they're probably going to expect that we're going to continue with their project if it's if it's all good. We, we do a little bit of that, but it would only be if one of us gets alarm bells from someone in those initial conversations. But, you know, like we don't get millions of inquiries every day you know it's like it's sort of it's really strange how they come and and go and it sort of tends to be as a big flurry that's not associated with anything i know they come in like waves don't they and then nothing it's just like crickets but one thing that we've actually found that's really good is is actually just sort of saying look if if you do have the the, a wave it's just saying like we have we'll be able to do your project in six months um you know we'll be able to start it in six months I'm sorry if that's a thing, but we are servicing our current lot of clients and the implication is that six months down the track you will treat them in the same way and as long as you honour that when you, you make a commitment to meet them at that time and then we're actually doing a deposit now of one of those three grand stages, what that means is that mm, you can give them all the, brief, the, briefing, the briefing documents, you can start getting the survey done, you know, usually, often that's... Town planning that, advice. That goes really, yeah, get town planning advice. It's, it's like there's stuff you can be doing... And, and it sort of sorts out the yeah. ones for us. It's the, it's the guys who are in a massive rush that are the problem. So it's if they're keen on using us and they've done their research and they've talked to other architects and they, they want to use us, then they tend to be okay with that, you know. That for us is a, has been really great and it means that we can then, and that deposit thing is really good because it means that we can actually forecast when we're going to have work and what work we can pull on, pull in and stuff. And I know that sounds probably a pretty basic thing that most practices do, but we're we're, we're not that um, <laughs> we're not that structured around here, Dave. It's all a bit loose. Yeah, I think it pretty- but there's also, I think, I think too, Dave. In the last couple of years, like you know, there was a stage where everyone was in a bit of a hurry, and and yeah, it's been sort of- Queensland. Brisbane and Queensland property markets, like oh. it, like everybody knows, it's famous for being a crazy market over the last couple of years, you know? So yeah. how, how you guys manage that is just crazy. Well, there was this, th- you know, we had some clients in a, in a sort of a bit of a flurry and, and then you sort of say we, we can't start anything for three or four months because, A, we can't get a survey done, We you know, we can't get an engineer to look at it, but then all the builders we're talking about to using they don't have a spot for the next 18 months. So what, why are we, why are we rushing this? Like, you know, like in fairness, like you can't get a tender. So you have to use one builder and that builder, we know exactly what he's got on the books because he's the same builder that John Elway uses or Lineberg Wang or, you know, so yeah. everyone knows what's, what, what their lineup is. And so why are we rushing this? Like, you know, how about we do a better job and give you the level of commitment we've given the other guys? Yeah, Absolutely. No, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think this comes up quite often, this idea of like time and clients waiting to start as being quite a good qualifier of who's so, sort of separating the wheat from the chaff because, you know, people that are willing to wait, they've got they've got more commitment. They've they've chosen you more specifically, most likely, you know, based on them really liking your work and doing the research. You're not just you know, a, a Anderson architect in the, you know, in the phone book that they've just called up and you're like, you know, they're going, can we start tomorrow? There's actually some really like careful choice there. Um, so that, that pops up quite a lot as being something that people don't intentionally just, you know, instill a waiting list when they don't need one. It usually happens through circumstance being just overwhelmed by inquiries and then not wanting to just get out of control with it. But then they end up going, oh, it's actually quite a nice way to actually <laughs> improve the quality of the clients we end up mm. working with in some ways. So, no, it's cool, cool hearing that again. Yeah, and I think that's that fee scale document that I was talking about earlier, how you said um, whether it um, is the same for every client, that was also part of uh, like we just put it in one place in just one document. So basically an inquiry comes in, we just change the address on the document and send it back to them. And, and so it's, you know, we can have that back to them straight away, but it explains more or less how we work 
without giving away all our IP. We don't sort of go out. We, we will go to site and meet them before they've signed that agreement, but at least they've got an idea about what the fees are. You don't, you know, we used to spend so long going out and meeting people and then doing a, you'd be mm. explaining the process every time, a million phone calls and stuff. This was just literally, this is our first response is just change the address, send that out. And then that just, that sort of is a big sorting piece as well. Oh my God. Can you guys send me that document later? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, just, it's just so much better because it's- We've got so much it, time back. We, we used to like literally you'd be searching through your inbox for the last email you sent and you'd copy that and paste it in there. But it's, you end up spending so long on all of them. And I know people people charge for that initial yeah. meeting and stuff, but I, I think that that's crazy because you're sort of putting a piece of friction, you know, even if it's $200 or something, it's like if someone else isn't charging that and there is a million good people in Brisbane, you know, like it's, it's – yeah, and we, we often are up. You know, like we, we'll go and see a client. They will be talking to John Elway or Lineberg Wayne or Kin or someone. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's great for us now. We just sort of talk to them. And if we win the project, it's great. If we don't win the project, we love following what the other guys are going to do with the with it anyway, that we know they're going to do a good yeah. job. I love, I love just like getting it out of the way and being upfront about pricing because, you know, a lot of the time when someone's reaching out to you, you feel like it's a project inquiry, like they're ready to get going. But in reality, they're just doing basically a price check. They're just curious to know like what you charge. And you can't tell the difference as the as the architect or as the consultant in my case. Like you go through the whole process, you do the initial meeting, you spend time putting together a custom fee proposal, you do all of that stuff. At least I don't have to actually physically go anywhere to meet my clients. I'm in bloody Perth. But um, but you guys, like you'd actually, in a lot of cases, want to go out to site and all this sort of stuff. And it, it is such a time waste. So I love this idea of going, we're just going to have this little step at the beginning where it's just, this is just indicative pricing so that if we're worlds apart in terms of what your expectations are and what we're going to do this for, like we're done from day one and it costs us cost each of us two minutes of our time rather than taking up two hours of just, you know, faffing around. So I really, really like that process. And I think I'm literally going to put together a document this afternoon based on yours. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good though, yeah. No, that, that totally works. Maybe bringing things back a little bit to something we touched on earlier in terms of, I guess, the brand. Because I think when we're talking about pricing and we're thinking about, you know, structuring fees, the way you do that always kind of changes as you move into different parts of the market, you know? So as you kind of maybe go on and the type of clients you're working with changes over time, you're always having to sort of evolve how you do fees and how you approach different things because your clients change. I guess like, has there been, you know, we're talking about this idea of as a brand, like where do we sort of sit in the market, but where do you guys kind of feel like you're at at the moment? You mix, you mentioned that you've got like this mix of sort of the bigger stuff and then the occasional small thing comes in and sort of fills a gap where you've got capacity for it. But like, do you guys think long-term, like where do you reckon the the kind of the core client is going to be? Like the, the person that is your kind of typical, like, yeah, that's a Nielsen Jenkins client. We see them and we're like, yep, that's the one for us. You know, we would expect them to come to us even if they were chatting to some of the cool you know, architects around here, like what would bring them towards us, I suppose? I don't know. I'd, I'd really love for that person to be really varied. I know that lots of people have really specific answers to that question, but for us that person is really um, a really critical part of what ends up happening. And I think we actually went through a, a time period there where we had we sort of shifted from being just mates, mates approaching us, to design something for them because we were the only architects they knew to sort of once you get a few things published, then people start coming because of the work that they'd seen. And then we got to a point where we were a little bit frustrated by the work that they'd seen and, and we, we felt like we wanted to be doing, you know, and I think that's the sort of landscape step. But there was this really nice period of time that happened around Keith and Tara's place and, and the Woolawan house where the clients were, had really, really specific briefing requirements. Keith, Keith was an artist who worked from home. He had a studio that could cater. It needed to cater for sort of small shows and stuff like that downstairs. And then Woolawan, um, Simon and Rach had um, that, that they had owned restaurants and they had really specific sort of cooking requirements and entertaining requirements. It's, it, it was something that shifted in the way that we were working where we just had to like try and find what that specific thing was in potential clients and we sort of went down a rabbit hole of improving our briefing 
documents and stuff to try and flesh out what that thing was. So that that was sort of an inherent part of the process. And I, I don't know, I, I felt like the project shifted up a notch at that point because they were much less generic just based on how we would imagine ourselves in there. Of course, there's a bit of that, but it's overlaying that sort of specificity to the work, which I, I don't know we found really, really rewarding. And Toowoomba House as well was around that time and they had really specific sort of requirements for their kids and stuff as well. So, it, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that our process has really improved in that time and, and I, I would hate that we are only appealing to a certain smaller population of people or more specific because the last thing you want to do is sort of just keep banging out the same stuff. I think there's also the, the, the big question that we don't haven't really um, worked out yet is what the next step is. Like, and I think we're all as a practice keen to sort of test ourselves in different types of building, do different typologies that like we would love to do an education building or um, we've tested, we've, we've tried ourselves at sort of some commercial projects that we get varying degrees of enjoyment from but i think that and involvement involvement, yeah but i think i think that like that's the next step is sort of and i think that's a really valuable exercise is be more specific about projects you take on so then you're heading towards something like that and i think it's something that we need to sit down as sit down and do as a practice that's probably like that next stage that you guys are going to start thinking about a bit more Mm. yeah I'm always interested, you know, it's, it's it, half the time you see practices who do make that leap and it's just a, a chance meeting of a chance client or, a, you know, someone oh, yeah. somewhere who's an advocate. And, and Pretty much always. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think that our work would be really translatable into a bigger scale thing, you know, because of the process we take um, when we design a house. But, yeah, I, I, we'd love to test our chops at, at a slightly bigger scale, I think, and, and I I think that's our next big step. There's always this kind of conversation that comes up about architects. I talk about it every single episode. Uh, I don't know why, but this idea of like having a style, this sort of, or a signature or like how the extent to which you're kind of repetitive as a studio versus having variety and sort of just like responding to each client. And I think you made that interesting point about, you know, we like the clients to have a bit more variety. Like it's a bit more, gives us a bit more to maybe like work with creatively or at a concept level for a project I think and bringing that out in the brief is a really great I think that's probably one of the most um interesting sort of ways of looking at it because I think sometimes you know practices will say I really like having a great variety of clients but the reasoning for that is that they just kind of have a very random mix of clients and so they go I'm pretty I'm like kind of that's what I've got so I love it because Otherwise, what am I doing? It's sort of like an acceptance of a random mix of clients, but actually kind of going, you know, there's something that that does for our projects that's really, you know, adds to those projects, I think is a good thing. But that said, you know, with that thing about style and consistency, I find that most studios don't actually like lay out. This is exactly like what we're about as a studio and the type of work we're going to try to do. What tends to happen as studios get better known over time as their work gets better known is that they just tend to attract more and more people who are kind of similar to each other. <laughs> and so it's like Discover Weekly. they don't really do anything. You know, their client their clients just end up looking like carbon copies of each other sort of to a degree. Like their client, the people that walk in the door just end up being a lot more similar to one another because, you know, it's like when you first start a studio and everyone's just coming from word of mouth from your cousin or somebody you went to uni with or whatever, they don't know anything about your work and they're, com- they're, they're a completely random mix of people. You just don't know what you're going to get. But once it's like your work is pulling in people, you tend to get people that kind of buy into the ideas of those projects and they, and they tend to have a lot in common with each other. So I feel like that creates this cycle where studios just naturally get a little bit more consistent, repetitive over time. I don't know if that's you know always the case, but it's just something I've picked up on the podcast a little bit anyway and from work with my clients. It's probably really true. Something Stewie Vokes always says, but it, like each project is isn't just a project in isolation; it's part of a sort of a body of work. And I think that that's a really important thing to understand as a practice, and particularly as a young practice, when you're just trying your best in someone in your cousin's dunny reservation um, renovation, or you know, doing a deck for someone. So just trying to find one thing that you're proud of, or one lesson that you learned in that, and then you carry that through. And so, of course, there's ideas that aren't worth, you know, you don't throw them out. Like Mount Cutha House was probably, you know, our fourth or fifth project with exposed concrete blocks. 
but it, the detailing is much more refined. And then Locke's sister's place, which we haven't um, uh, photographed yet, was around the same time and we were infinitely better at drawing block work and tin and we had had all these conversations with a roofer who did the same, you know, he did the roof on the second one. And so, like, you're getting better as well, you know, and that, that the ideas aren't worth throwing out as you're getting better, better at them. You can test them in different ways and, you know, the, the realities of the economic proposal that we were doing for Mount Kutha House is the same as what we were throwing in there at Lock Sisters Place and durability and, and maintenance and all those things. And we're, we're sort of still doing projects that are testing those ideas and really different spatially or volumetrically or from a conceptual point of view. Yeah, so it's so it's interesting, you know, you can tend to get kind of almost typecast into these sort of different roles. In a studio, you, you know, you get known for a certain thing and then that's what everyone thinks you do. And it's something that, you know, musicians have to think about a lot and actors have to think about a lot and, like, there's these roles and it's so it's so weird and fascinating because, you know, architecture and architecture firms, we're, we're just like normal, small, local businesses, you know. At the end of the day, like, are we really that different from you know, um, any other sort of service provider in the construction industry. But because it's architecture, it's got this whole other layer of our our kind of public image and our work is widely known like an art, like it's that artist aspect of our business, which I think is sometimes like, I don't know, it's a weird, weird thing to look at, but oftentimes like people will be kind of talking about, they'll be listening to the podcast, they'll send me feedback because we might be having a conversation that's kind of talking more about that artist side of the business, but their focus is on the business, local business side of it. And then they're like really disagreeing with what we'll be chatting about. And then there'll be the opposite approach where we might be talking about something that's just very kind of mundane realities of like running just a normal business, like an engineer or a painting company or whatever. And the people are in this like artist mindset and they're like, well, what does that have to do with anything? And I just, I don't know, I kind of find it interesting how our business sits in this thing where we have, we have to kind of have a concern to both ends of that, that we're not, we're, we are a business, but we're also thinking about how we do have like an image as a creative brand. Like it's odd, isn't it? When I you think, actually um, think about uh, it. Tim, Tim Hill did this amazing lecture one time um, where he was, he started it where he was just sort of saying, as soon as architects stop calling themselves fucking artists, the better, you know? We're just like we're just problem solvers in the same way that everyone else is problem solvers. Our, our we've got like a sphere of capability, like it, it it overlaps with engineering and it overlaps with with building and it overlaps with landscape and stuff like that. In the same way that a doctor might have a sphere of problem solving, and and I think that's that is sort of I guess the way that they managed in their amazing practice to sort of change the work depending on scale or. Um, typology or over time that they started off doing buildings that were completely carpentry because that was the cheapest way of building at that point in time and that they developed into more masonry and more block work and rendered block work and stuff as that became the economical way of doing it and then spending the money where they wanted to and it's mm-hmm. exactly you know the sort of thread of theirs was to make these amazing you know one incredible room per project that was sort of for the city even if it was for the for a house or a public building or whatever. And and I think if you think of it like that, maybe that's the way that you negotiate that sort of stylistic thing and it's actually we're using the material that's most appropriate to solve this particular thing um, that lets us bring this concept, which changes every project. Um, and that's the focus. But this other yeah. thing is just allowing us to achieve that in a way that's efficient and economical and, and, and resilient and, responsible and all those sort of things maybe that's the way that to look at it oh yeah it's certainly how we try and look at it yeah and that it just sort of naturally emerges yeah it is a bit scary when you when you get clients in the door that have seen another project and they just want that sort of mac 2 or mac 3 and and that's that's you know for me it's definitely a terrifying prospect you know we kind of enjoy when we first talk to clients and say we've got no idea what this thing's made of what it's going to look like how it's going to do anything until we started and some some clients really embrace that and the right clients really embrace that but when people start saying well it's got to be white and it's got to be this and it's got to have that and it's got to do this you start to go oh, i don't know the, the, you know part of the puzzle's <laughs> already been taken away from us and the joy or the exploration or the journey of of 
realizing what it could be is done and then it just becomes a sort of rinse and repeat and you know it's a yeah it's a different type of dunning block on a different block you know like it I don't think we're interested in that. Well, I'm definitely not interested in it. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I don't know if Morris is shaking his head or not, but like it, 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 it I think it would be terrifying to get to the end of a career and that's just one building, one roof fall, one awning detail, one door threshold, yeah. um, one landscape, yeah. or, or the, how the building meets that landscape. It's, I don't know. Maybe I'll give it up at that stage. It's kind of like, you know, I think that's where in, as like a, you know, trying to learn more about business as an architect or trying to kind of get up to speed on, you know, what is kind of uh, recommended as far as, I guess, like thinking more about the business side and the strategy there, you know, everything you read is about the value of specializing and, you know, trying to get things as kind of efficient and repetitive as possible because that way the business will be kind of more profitable if you kind of do the same thing over and over again and you develop kind of a, you know, a reputation for that and that sort of thing. But, you know, like the evidence for that working in the architecture space is not very strong. (laughs) It's like you don't tend to see too many, you know, thriving architecture brands that just kind of, I guess it's debatable, isn't it? You know, one man's sort of uh, interesting consistent portfolio is another is another's repetitive you know copy paste cookie cutter right so it's hard to say but generally speaking i think like the practices that are the best known and the most respected and tend to have no trouble attracting work they do tend to be quite each building tends to be a contribution of something new and interesting and but i do think too you can get economies like we we touched on how we could do small projects because it, it was a it was a point that was raised to us by the national jury about how we were even involved in this project and what how did we make any money but i think if you can customize your fee setup or even the structure of what you're documenting to suit the project to allow you to do that type of project you know there's because you could be just really rigorous and go well i'm going to charge 20 percent and 20 percent on a 30 a $300,000 project it's not going to stack up, you know, pretty quickly. You're out the door before you've even started. But, to, to you know, like I, I I do feel like, and it's not, not, I'm not suggesting it's anything new, but we have focused on getting the right type of clients and making sure our fees are aligned with other practices that we respect, but also, too, making sure that we can get effort into the door with some of these smaller projects with with the right clients, with the right people who are invested in design and, and like what our work can do and how we can help them to realise their project and live better and, and, and have an approachable architecture to a degree. That, that, so that You know, all that sort of sits underneath the stuff that's in magazines or the imagery of it, really. That can be sort of varied. I think it's a really, a really positive thing generally, Dave, the way you set up this podcast, because I, I, I think that it's it's something that architects um, don't talk about very much into a larger group. I think you know we have a, we've been really lucky with amazing mentors who have been really open to us about how they've set up you know business stuff in in, in Brisbane. Um, but I, I I sort of feel like there's so much that goes on. There's so much other stuff in making a good building. Than just the than just the design of a good building, you know. It's it's there's so many humans involved, and 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 how all of those people interact. I think that's the part that you can, and we've really focused on, um, sort of streamlining and 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 focused a lot of energy on sort of gathering really good people around us that are problem solvers. And so it is going to be stressful, even if it's goes perfectly it's going to be one of the most stressful things the client ever does so it's like if you're surrounded by problem solvers and not people who are you know Locke and I aren't the people who are good at being really contractual and really you know we're not aggressive contract people and what we've learned is you know the hard way is we don't want clients who are aggressive contract people we don't want builders who are aggressive contract people we want people who are you know we, we try and and of course you get stung but the things that we can control, you know, we try to, you know, and one of them is the builder and the engineer and the certifier and the, all those people. So if you can control them, the outcome for everyone and the, the project is good. It's sort of, it's, it's much more important that you get a good builder than you get a good 
door seal detail because a good builder will do it regardless and they will have factored it in. You know, if you spend your energy fostering that relationship rather than, you know, drawing everything at one is to one and expecting people to build it in a really sort of aggro manner. It's always coming up on the podcast that, you know, getting to the point where you actually end up with the end result of a beautiful set of photos of a building and a really bloody happy client and you're an ha- and you're a happy architect with what you've done. I mean, the number of things that have to go right, uh, it's just, it's like mind boggling. And, you know, it, just in terms of the podcast, we I just really even I'm talking about, you know, the initial stage of kind of, who comes in the door and maybe, you know, how do you structure fees the right way? And I reckon it's like 1% of the the overall list of things that have to be in the, you know, have to be in order for things to go smoothly. It's absolutely astonishing. I mean, I don't know how you guys do it, but anyway, respect behind every project you see in a magazine, it's like, oh man, so many things have had to, had to turn out right. But yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, maybe we should leave it there, guys. I've taken up all of your afternoon. So um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate both of you guys spending the time. Um, And yeah, thank you so much. Pleasure, man. Thanks, Dave. That was my conversation with Lachlan and Morgan from Nielsen Jenkins. If you'd like to learn more about Nielsen Jenkins, you can visit nielsenjenkins.com. You can also follow the studio on Instagram at nielsen.jenkins. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.